If you're open your Bibles to um, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we're going to be um, preaching through Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, um, this Sunday and next Sunday. So we're going to do an overview and then a little more detail next week. But we're also going to begin in Revelation chapter 1, because we have to take these things in context. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord again in, in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for our time together. We pray that you would bless this time of the preaching and hearing of your word, that you would give me the holy unction to be able to properly um, present the things that you have here, that we might hear your voice in them. We'd hear the gospel, we'd be encouraged, we'd be made more like you so that when we leave from here, we, we are different. And we pray that you, you've promised that your word will not return void. It will accomplish what it is that you would have for it to accomplish. As Puritan writer has said, that the same sun that hardens the, the clay melts the ice. So we would pray that if people have hard hearts, that um, their hearts will be melted by your word. And for those who are um, in you and those who know you would be comforted and learn more and trust in the gospel even more and more, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So just the first three verses to begin with, of Revelation, it really sets the way we approach the book. So as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we hear the word of the Lord. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. <clears throat> Therefore, one of the things that we see is the time is near. And you have to remember, this was not written yesterday. This was written in the first century church. So when the first century church is, is, is reading this, what they're hearing is, these things are going to happen soon. The time is near. That there are things that we are to hear, and it will bless us. And those who hear will be blessed. And those who keep what is written, not just us, Sometime in the future where this is going to be really good for people to know about. But for the entire church history from the time of Christ's revelation to the time of the last and final, the day of the Lord. And so what we're going to see is how the spiritual, how God is at work in the world as we try to make sense of the things we see around us. And we see this in the beginning as we get to chapter rest of chapter one you see that jesus is walking among the churches and in chapters two through three we have these letters to these seven churches but jesus is pictured in this revelation as being in the midst of these candle stands these lamp stands 
having these seven stars in his hands, and he tells us the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, or the messengers of the churches that we believe were, were in, on the one hand, the, the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church, but also that there is the Spirit of God that is amongst the churches. So we're not alone in this. We have the Holy Spirit, and we're to shine like lights in the world. And so the number seven, and this is apocalyptic literature, it tells us that at the very beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypto of Jesus Christ, and that sets up a certain genre of literature, which is apocalyptic literature, which means, by definition, what we're going to see in this letter is a bunch of signs and symbols and things that are meant to indicate some other deeper reality. And so, as I've said, probably each week is, you get a symbol, 50 people can come through and say 50 different things about what that symbol represents. And so, for this reason, you get a couple of things. You get some people that are like, you can't understand Revelation, there's no need to read it. And given the number of different interpretations you hear from pulpits on the book of Revelation, it's very understandable. But I would have to say that do not believe God gave us a book of the Bible that is so difficult to understand that 50 different churches should have 50 different interpretations. And so our method of interpretation that we follow um, in the Reformed faith and particularly in the history of the church, the way this has been done is the only right and true and perfect interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. And so if the Bible is going to interpret the Bible for us, one thing we have to do is recognize, one, it's not going to contradict itself. So if you have a contradictory interpretation with the rest of the Bible, eh, that's wrong. Second is, if you have a book of the Bible that has so much imagery and symbolism in it, there has to be some way to understand what it is. Because he says, you will know, you can understand. And so what we see are direct... I mean, direct imagery that comes from Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel, Daniel, you see things from um, Zechariah, all over the place in the Old Testament. These wild and crazy imagery, they're there. And it tells us what they mean. Another thing is the time is near. And we know the Lord is not slow according to his promises a day. And the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So he's not slow in, in um, fulfilling his promises. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying these things are near. They were near to those who were living. And I believe in the early date of the writing of Revelation. It, it could, I believe it's before the fall of Jerusalem. If any people know what this means. And, or it could have been written in 1895 after the fall of Jerusalem and alluding back to these things I don't think it necessarily makes a difference um, as to how these things are um, to be interpreted but I do think a problem with the interpretation of Revelation is opening your newspaper and comparing it to what's in your newspaper and saying locust that must be Apache helicopters I think it's ridiculous and I apologize well I don't I think it's ridiculous <laughs> the Old Testament the, new, the early church would have no clue what this is talking about it would mean nothing to them and it's just not possible that the Lord has written a book of the Bible to encourage the church throughout all the ages in a way that could only be understood for select few at the very end. So we have to make sure that we're interpreting this as this is a letter to seven churches. And you need to conquer. 
Each letter ends with that. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. And what's it mean to conquer? Because it does not mean to the one who helps the church take over the world. And we, we have finally the church in control of all things politically. That we put our guy in as the ruler of the world. That Jesus finally comes down and rules as king once everybody becomes a Christian. And so what we try to do is take over the world and the governments and, and control in that way. Church history, you look at that, it never ends well. Um, I don't know who you want to be the head of the one world church. I think that probably would end up Antichrist just doing like this and saying, let me get myself in there. So you've got to be very careful um, with the, the power of the unified church when it becomes unified in a, a political or in a governmental fashion because the more unified the church has been throughout the history of the world, the more deadly it becomes. It starts to kill people, and, and it's just an opportunity for the flesh because the bigger we get, the more we trust in ourselves. And so I believe that what the Lord has done and what we see, too, in the book of Revelation is he keeps us scattered, but he also keeps us united by his spirit so that we understand that we're to follow our Lord, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when you see him, he is standing as the lamb slain. And so that the way we conquer the world, and what is it that conquers the world? Our faith. Our faith is what conquers the world. So to conquer means you get through all of this with your faith intact. And to use the vernacular... That ain't easy to do. Look at the number of people with weak faith, and when hard things happen, they fall. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's you. But we're called during the most difficult trials, and this is what the book of Revelation is telling us. God is in control. Keep faith. Don't give up. Trust in the Lord with all your strength. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies yourself. Again, you're in the church in Afghanistan this morning. Maybe could I preach the same message there? And if we're not preaching a message that can be preached equally in Afghanistan, in Haiti, in China, North Korea, um, any Middle Eastern countries that are dominated by some other religion that persecutes openly Christians. If you can't preach the same message and understand the same message, we don't have the same message. From Revelation 2 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And what's that mean? He walks among the churches. Jesus Christ is walking among the churches. And the last church he writes a letter to, he's like, basically, what is your deal? You're always dead. I stand at the door of your church. Imagine that. Some churches are so loud in the way they worship, they can't even hear Jesus knocking at the door. Some churches are so loud in their worship, the Holy Spirit left a long time ago, and it's not even noticed. Some churches are so dead, they can't hear anymore. And he says, it's, but I do stand. Even in those churches, I stand at the door knocking. Anybody, even in those churches, opens the door to me, I'll come in and eat with them. So he says, at the end of each one of these letters too, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's what the book of the Revelation is. What he's saying to us as believers who will conquer. 
And then in chapter 4 is this throne room scene of God, with God at the center of all creation, God at the center of all worship, everybody and all the creatures, all the living creatures, all the angels, all the, the, the saints, everybody gathered around all of creation, the myriad and myriad and myriad of angels too, and they're all crying out with the loudest of voices like thunder, and it's just crying out in worship to God, 411. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And in chapter 5, we see uh, the ascendancy of Jesus Christ to the throne, where he's the resurrected Savior. He ascends into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he, we see the, the, the coronation where he's, he's, he's coming, and, and instead of <coughs> what happens is there's um, God on the throne, and he has a scroll with the seven seals, and who can open the scroll? Who is worthy? And there's no one found worthy, and John weeps. And then one of the elders comes, he says, don't, don't cry. One has been found worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And so he is worthy to open the scroll in verse, in chapter 5. And so he, he hears that there's this lion, but he looks and he sees this lamb standing as if slain. So it's Jesus Christ. The way he conquered the world was through his death. The death that we all deserved, what Jesus came and what he did was he submitted himself, lived a perfect life, and then fulfilled all righteousness um, where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus Christ, first in the desert, he did not fail, he withstood the temptations of, of Satan, and then he lived his entire life submitting himself to the cross, that he was not, his death was not required because he did not deserve death, but if he was going to fulfill our righteousness, as John the Baptist had him baptized, so that he could be united to us in this experience, and we'd be united to him with this experience, and so then when he's crucified, dies in our place, fulfilling this covenant of death so that he spills his blood in our place, then he's resurrected on the third day for our justification that we're declared righteous in him because his death was sufficient, because if it wasn't, he'd still be dead, but he was found to be perfect, and his, you know, he said on the cross, it is finished, then it was finished, and it was enough, and it was enough for all who call upon the name of the Lord that they shall be saved. And he is worthy. And then in chapter 6, he begins to open these seals. And he opens five seals, and the first are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's one coming out to conquer and to conquer with his bow. And there's another that's death with the great sword. And Hades follows. And it's just all of these things that, that are continuing to come in our world as the church looks at it and says, what is going on? Why are these things happening? And these things are happening. And God is saying, I am in control of these things. And then the fifth seal is opened and the martyrs come out and they say, how long, O oh Lord? They're crying out like this is... You know, before you take vengeance on us, the, the world is, is killing us. The world is against us. The, everything seems to be arrayed at times against us. And, and he tells them just a little longer until the full number of the martyrs comes in. And then chapter 6, 
verse 12. He opens the sixth seal. Now look, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. And as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand in chapter 7 verse 9 after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation all the tribes and all the peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and then all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this is the response of the people. And we see the end of the world occurring but what chapter 7 does is it begins by saying, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow. And I saw another angel ascending and rising from the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm all the earth, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So all of these things are going to happen. But first, you need to understand and what the revelation of Jesus Christ is telling us here is, believer, you are sealed. Bad things are going to happen. I don't know if anybody's told you this, but unless the Lord comes back quickly, you're going to die. You're going to have bad things happen to you. You are sealed as a believer, not literally on your forehead, but symbolically on your forehead. You belong to Christ. If you are in him, if you are a believer, you are sealed by him. Follow that. A seal. Seal of protection. Seal of ownership. Seal of authenticity. We call the sacraments signs and seals. You are mine. I am yours. You will not be harmed. No one can snatch you from my hand. Now, as long as we're talking about seals, marks, signs, don't worry about the mark of the beast as if maybe I might get some tattoo of a barcode or I might take an injection or I might do something and I get the mark of the beast. That gum and I didn't even know when I'm in hell. Mm. I knew that was the mark of the beast. Sorry, Jesus, you warned me. I deserve to burn in hell forever. The one thing that can keep you out of, out of heaven, accidentally getting that mark of the beast. Oh, I've been so foolish. The mark of the beast, quit with the ridiculousness. mark of the beast is you don't belong to Christ. You belong to Satan. And there's only two camps. You may be spiritual. That's good. 
You may be a pagan that worships rocks and birds and things. You may be somebody who just says, well, I don't know. I'll find out when it's over. But unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you've um, been born again by the Spirit, and if you have been, then you're sealed. Then you have the mark of the beast on you. And he calls the tune and you dance to it. So make sure you're in the faith. That's the thing. Because you're sealed. That's it. Are there things that the government may do that demonstrate the fact that they are the beast and that they want total control and we need to be careful and we might not want to get tattooed with barcodes? Yes and amen. Be careful who you worship. I mean, there's common sense things. And some things are only understood spiritually. But it is not that you can receive the mark of the beast and accidentally end up in hell. That's something Satan would love for the church to believe. So we don't listen to Satan preaching from pulpits. We listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ teach? Believe on me and you shall be saved. And all these things I just read about blood and sun and all that stuff, Old Testament. It's right out of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at that in just a minute too. And, and fear not, we're going to cover this chapter in more detail next week. But I want us to make sure we get on the same page so that when these trumpets start blowing, we have the proper response. So chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we see you know, 12,000 from the tribe, 12,000 from the tribe. It's military census. And then he says he sees all these being um, sealed from the tribes of Israel, but then he looks, and that's when he sees in verse 9, he sees multitude, no one can number from every tribe, tongue, nation, land, language. It's everybody. So it's not Israel that's being saved. It's spiritual Israel that's being saved, and we're all being included in this, every nation, including Israel. There's going to be people from everywhere that are brought into the gospel. And some military census. So you're being arrayed like nation was around the tabernacle uh, in the desert. And all the tribes were around it. And we see what? What's, why did they do that? Well, because in the New, Tes in New Testament and Revelation, we see a glimmer in the heaven. And what do we see? God at the center. The throne at the center. Everybody gathered around. Everybody gathered around. And that's where we are today. Jesus walking in the midst of the churches. And we're being called first, see these seals that are happening and recognize that we're sealed. But then there's some trumpets that start blowing. So let's, let's read this. Let's start in chapter 8. And we covered verse 1 through 5 last time. So let's, let's look at this because this seventh seal happens after all this sealing and after seeing that God has protected his people. So Revelation 8, 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer. That's this thing that's full of, you know, he's, he's, he's emptied the prayers out. It goes up with the, the incense. It's given to God. He takes that same container. In other words, here's the answer to our prayers. He, he, um, he takes the censer in verse 5, fills it with fire from the altar, and throws it on the earth, 
and there are peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So we got the day of the Lord stuff happening. So now, another perspective. We're going to see this again. And now the trumpets. So now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And I just like Greek. In Greek, it's literally they're going to trumpet the trumpets. It's, it just, it's got a better ring to it. They're about to trumpet the trumpets. And the first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. A second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven like a blazing torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon. And a third of the stars. So that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. Now just stopping there, what we've noticed is um, there's going to be a pause. And there was four. There were four horsemen before. And then there were the four seals that were opened. And there's a change. And this is the same pattern we see happening again. Verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Word of the Lord. So this is what we're going to look at in more detail next time, but I want you to, we're going to look at it a little bit now, but what I want you to primarily notice is, again, this is not things that we're just thinking about are going to happen in the future. Oh my God, I mean, people are scared to death from the book of Revelation, and that's not what, if Satan was preaching from the book of Revelation, he would have Christians leave from here saying, I don't ever want to hear the book of Revelation again, I won't think about it, I don't have nothing to do with it, that stuff just scares me, and I'm, that's it, uh-uh. And so, that's what Satan would preach, and what Jesus would preach is, <laughs> be ye encouraged. Be ye encouraged, be strengthened. Listen to what I had to say. There are things that are happening. So, just the last few minutes we have here, let's think about trumpets. Why trumpets? And we might think, well, I know what a trumpet means. A trumpet means, I don't care what a trumpet means to you. You didn't write the book of Revelation. Yeah, what did it mean to John? What did it mean to the Holy Spirit? What did he mean when he wrote to these first people that were first reading it? What did trumpets mean to them? How does one in the Old Testament, how does ones in this first century church, how do you interpret trumpets? Well, even back then, you might have had different guys interpreting trumpets. Like, my mama played a trumpet, and I always loved a trumpet. And somebody else is like, my daddy woke us up in the morning with a trumpet. I hate trumpets, so this is a bad thing. Oh, this is a good thing. So... Does the Old Testament in any way make use of trumpets? And the answer is, is quite predominant what the trumpets do. And so 
one place, we're going to look at two places very quickly. One is in Numbers chapter 10. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So you can find that. It's no sin to use your table of contents. Numbers chapter 10, start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. Okay? You're going to summon the congregation. You're going to summon... This is, yeah, wherever it is, Chris, ring your trumpet sometime. And you're going to play this trumpet, and it's going to call. But it's like we have bells. We have like... What do you, what do you, what's the thing we put up in the steeple? A bell? Yeah. You play the bell. You play these songs. From the, it calls the people, you know, to, to worship, kind of. I mean, we don't do that a lot anymore. The, the, but, um, you know, that was the idea. These trumpets are calling people um, to come together and also to break camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is the, the tabernacle there. But if they blow only one... Then the chiefs and the heads of the tribes of Israel shall gather themselves to you. If you blow an alarm, and I think the NIV calls this, if you sound the advance, which is a pretty good way of interpreting this. If you, if you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast. But you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall blow the trumpets. The trumpet shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies." On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder to you before your God that I am the Lord your God. So these angels have their trumpets, and they're going to blow these trumpets, and the church should hear the trumpets and say, Oh, I need to drop what I'm doing in civilian affairs, and I need to say, the Lord is on the move. The Lord is at work. I need to be about the Lord's work. I need to be gathered unto him. These things are calling the church to repentance, to faith, to, re to renewed discipline, to where it is, to cling tightly to the grace and mercy of our Lord and recognize the fact of who he is, and he is on the move, and therefore we need to be all about going into the world and making disciples so that they too might understand and be saved from these things. So that's a part of it. But if you're an enemy of the Lord, these trumpets are not a good sound. They're calling the people of God to war. Now, I'm not saying we take up arms and we go out against the world because we're trying to love our enemies and we're trying to convert them to Christ and we're trying to go out with deeds of love and mercy. We're out there with the gospel. We are willing to give our lives for the sake of the gospel, understanding that the Lord is in his holy temple and the earth will be silent before him, but he is on the move. He is at work. And our faith is the thing that we need to be focused on. Second place is Joshua. So you keep going. Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
and you'll get to Joshua, Joshua chapter 6. I'm just going to let you be there. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it's the, the battle of Jericho. And what you'll see happening in the battle of Jericho is you have seven priests with seven trumpets. So there's our seven, and there's our seven trumpets. So the battle of Jericho, these priests have the seven trumpets. They're going to march around Jericho. Jericho is in the promised land. They've got to defeat the, the, the city of Jericho. They're to march around six times. And the, ark, the priests are in front of the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord is behind there, and they're blasting the trumpets the whole time, all the way around. Six days. Once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they're told, march around the city seven times. And on that seventh time, there's finally a long trumpet blast, and then all the people are to shout, and the walls fall down, and they go walking in because the Lord has fought the battle. And this is the trumpet. The trumpet sounds. The trumpet is God fighting for his people. There has never been an army that has said, I'll tell you how we're going to defeat everybody. Let's just go around and blow trumpets and everybody shout. That'll do it. But it did it because God said, it's not by you, it's by me. And this is what he's reminding us of in Revelation. You see lots of things happening with these trumpet blasts in the world. I'm at work. I'm on the move. I am exacting vengeance on people, and I'm calling people to faith, and I'm calling people to recognize the third point I want to make, your gods can't save you unless your God is Yahweh, Jesus Christ. Because what you will see, and we'll look at more next time, is that each of these Trumpets that come very much parallel the ten plagues of Egypt. And so you look at the first trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood. So they had hail, they had fire, they had blood. Second trumpet, like a great mountain burning fire thrown into the sea. And it became blood. The water became blood in Egypt. Um, the third angel, and a great star falls from heaven, like a, a, and the water becomes like wormwood. And their water became bitter. They couldn't stink. They couldn't drink from it. The fourth angel, um, there's darkness. And we know that, too, was one of the plagues. And so it's supposed to point you back to think in your mind, again, to Egypt. What were the purpose of the plagues of Egypt? And they were a couple. They were to uh, convince Pharaoh to let my people go, to demonstrate that God is in control, each plague being particularly pointed against a different God of Egypt. So there's a frog God, there's a locust God, Ra is the sun God. So it's like, I'll do darkness. You can't do that. You know, I'll take all your frogs. I'm going to, you know, he's like mocking their gods. And so this is what we see happening in the world today that we need to recognize as we see things happening. That's God who is sending the trumpeters, it's God who fights the holy war. These events in, by insurance companies and, I guess, news reports and things will still call these things acts of God. You know, you have an insurance policy, it'll say, it also does it protect against acts of God. Well, what do you mean acts of God? You know, floods, fires, natural disasters. They'll call them acts of God. But the church sometimes will say, wait a minute, those aren't acts of God. Those are just natural disasters. God didn't do that. <laughs> it's like, how do, we, how do we reverse that? Yeah, it's like the world kind of calls it acts of God. Of course, they don't, they just mean it in some generic way. But we're like, we should be going, yes and amen. These are acts of God. Now, the problem is, we had a hurricane barreling up through Louisiana. 
very deadly, very dangerous. First of all, thank God, we, we know it's coming. I mean, you've got, you have the means, you have the method, you have the warning signs, you have everything you need. And that reminds me of the last time there was a hurricane that we, I made the analogy between a tornado warning and a hurricane warning. A tornado warning, buddy, you better get in quick. A hurricane warning, you've got time. You got time. You got time. Sometimes you get called for a hurricane, and a hurricane always show up. I'm going to ride this one out. And that way, a lot of people look at the gospel. It ain't coming, it never has come. I'm just going to ride this one out. And then you look and you see devastation in some Yahoo standing out there with his American flag and shorts on, going, woo! You know. And it's like, and he lives. So everybody else is like, well, he did it, I can do it. No, idiots just live sometimes, so you gotta be careful with that. I'm sorry, fools. And so this is what the Lord is calling us to. He's like, there's trumpets that are blowing. There's there's a there's an act of God coming up. Thank God we're aware of it. There's gonna be good people that could get killed in this. Now you can say, why does God let bad things happen to good people? And you can say, well, there's no such thing as good people, but there are people who are sealed by God. There'll be Christians who are who are, might die in this. Maybe they're trying to get away and they can't get away. No, I mean, earth, natural disasters occur and people die. We're all going to die of something, and these are all acts of God. In his sovereign plan in a cursed world where we're called to be salt and we're called to be light and the gospel is coming forth and we're supposed to have people to conquer in the midst of these things where they maintain their faith we should be saying, yes, but it doesn't mean it's because the people in Louisiana are worse than the people in New York or Iraq or somewhere. And there's a thing in the scriptures that says, remember the Tower of Siloam fell on these people. Were they more evil than anybody else? And no, I'll tell you, unless you too repent, something worse might happen to you. It's not particular judgment always. Sometimes it may be, but we don't know. God's not telling us these things. But we are told from the book of Revelation that God is all-powerful. We live in a cursed world, but God has sent his Son to seek and to save the lost. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And these natural disasters are warnings and judgments to everyone in the world is going to experience them at some time. Earthquakes, hurricanes, terrorisms, wars, pandemics. But these are not signs that that God is out of that God is not in control. G.K. Beale says they are not an expression. <coughs> sorry, that these things are an expression of holy war, coming as a result of the redeemed believers, the martyrs in heaven, praying to the sovereign God and His response to their prayers. How long, O Lord, before we are avenged? And He says. They say, when will you set all things right? And he says, just a little longer. And the trumpets are blowing. And the heavenly army is marching around the city of the world, calling for the city to repent. So when we see these things, there is nothing you can do to stop the hurricane. There is nothing you can do to stop the tornado. We think there's something we might can do to stop the pandemic. Not if God says no. Boy, look at the twists and turns that it can take. Doesn't call us to be foolish. You hear the hurricanes coming, get out of the way. I used to tell people, what's the best block to use when the train's coming at you? And it's like you don't block a train, you just step off the tracks. It can't come after you that way. Use 
your God-given brain sometimes. And if I had time, and next time we'll look at it, Joel chapter 2, you'll see the language exactly borrowed from Joel chapter 2 brought into here so that we know that we're not just to, to figure this out on our own. That God is in control. Things happen in our cursed and fallen world, and they're not random events. And they can be tragedies, great tragedies. And we're to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We don't tell people, suck it up, sorry your dog died, that's God's will. <sighs> Come on. It's difficult. It's hard. That's what life is difficult. Life is hard. But we conquer with our faith. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. We don't fear like those who have no faith. We know that God is in his holy temple. The earth is to be silent before him. And we are to trust in him no matter what comes before us. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy and love and your warnings. We have warnings in our own lives. We have trumpets that have blown. <laughs> Jerry Hager cut his finger with a at the table saw the other day said he heard a little voice tell him don't do that <laughs> so we all get those little warnings little things and, and sometimes they're big things or to remind us to be careful to remind us that you're in control to remind us that we're not god we don't have to be but that you are and ultimately it's you alone and you have the world in your hands and you're for us help us remember that that you are for us. As we come to the table, it reminds us you're not only for us, you've sealed us, you hold us, you feed us, you keep us moving, you keep us alive, even after we die. So we thank you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.